All right, we got a great interview for you guys today. Andrew Yang, presidential candidate, is back in the studio. How you doing, Andrew? Yeah, Good to see you, brother. Back. Thank okay. you for having me. All right, so uh, we gave the first national interview for for Andrew yep. um, when when you launched your presidential campaign, and that's why we do this because. We believe in outsiders, and we think that that you guys absolutely should get a hearing. And and you've made the best of it. Now you're in the top ten, uh, outpacing most of the field in the Democratic race. Just before we get into the policy, we're going to do a lot of policy sure. here. Okay. When you were thinking about when you were first running, did you really think that you'd be above all the senators and the congressmen, etc.? Yeah, you know, I genuinely did uh, because. I'm so focused on solving the problems that Americans can see around us uh, and proposing solutions like the freedom dividend of $1,000 a month uh, that would actually uh, be a game changer for tens of millions of American households. So I always believed I'd be here. I, I didn't know obviously what the path would hold uh, because as an entrepreneur, you never really know what every step is, but uh, I thought I'd be here. Yeah, all right, I like that confidence. So we've talked to Andrew on a couple of occasions, the first interview obviously, where we went over your major planks. And then we just caught up with you a couple of days ago in Iowa and we talked about the Progressive Economic Pledge. So that's already on tyt.com, please check that out because Andrew laid out his planks there again. Although there was this fun moment that I wanna share with you guys and then we'll do policy. Andrew, yeah, yeah. So I love that you did that, and because so you're not a standard politician. A lot of the politicians run from us. It's not that big a deal. You agree in some parts, disagree in some parts. Who cares? Come celebrate, right? And why the heck would they run from you guys? Like, it's not <laughs> I can tell you guys are like the, you guys are exactly the sort of people that we need to activate and listen to, and hopefully, you know, win with. So. Um, I don't, I can't, I like genuinely when some, someone says something like that to me, it blows my mind. Yeah, so all right, now Andrew, one of the things you're famous for is uh, probably out of the whole 24 uh, uh, person field, the two people best known for policy are Elizabeth Warren and you. Okay, and Good so- Good company. That's not bad, not bad. Now Bernie's had a lot of policies, but he's taken 40 years to unveil them. You guys are going 100 miles an hour. So. Uh, the, the list is so large, there's no way we could do them all. I'm just gonna do random ones. We'll do like really big ones, we'll do some small ones. So let's start with a random one, empowering MMA fighters. What? Um, <laughs> so uh, MMA fighters, and this is like a, a like a microcosm of what's happening um, in the economy writ large. Uh, but they're getting exploited to the nth degree by the UFC. Like we're talking about fighters getting paid like 10, um, 15, $20,000 um, for, a sport that's extraordinarily dangerous. And so here's where, where the kicker comes. A woman named Leslie Smith says, looks up and says, hey, we should have a union. Guess what happens next? They fire her. So she then goes to the National Labor Relations Board being like, hey, I got fired for unionizing. That's clearly retaliatory. And then they agree with her. And then Dana White, the head of the UFC, goes to Donald Trump and says, hey, squash this. And that's exactly what Donald Trump did. But the, the reason I'm, I feel strongly about this because it's happening to workers in every industry. Uh, and, and so MMA, you know, if you, you watch it on, um, on uh, ESPN now. Um, but the owners of the UFC are William Morris Endeavor, which includes some of the top um, agents and celebrities in the world. So it's like um, uh, Ben Affleck and Conan O'Brien and uh, Cam Newton 
are the shareholders of the UFC that is firing workers who are trying to unionize. Mm-hmm. So, so this to me is like something where um, you know you got to stick up for the little guy or little gal, and that includes people that put gloves on and, and pound the crap out of each other. <laughs> okay, I told you it's unique. Uh, data as a property right. Yeah, so right now you have companies that are profiting to the tune of sometimes billions of dollars um, on the backs of our data. Um, and in the healthcare space in particular, our data can be worth hundreds of dollars, and it's getting sold and resold and packaged up in all sorts of ways. Now, most of us aren't really aware of this. Uh, and so the goal is to say, look, if someone's profiting from our data, shouldn't it be us, at least in part? Uh, it's our data after all. So the goal is to make it so that we um, own our own data. And then if we choose to share it with companies for our own convenience, uh, then at least we get like a tiny slice and we can, if we want, turn that off. Mm-hmm. So Facebook is not gonna like that, and neither is Google. No, they probably will not like that a lot, because they're some of the biggest beneficiaries of the fact that right now it's a bit of a free for all. Indeed, okay, how about crypto digital asset regulation and consumer protection? Now, so right now, cryptocurrency is a bit of a wild west, to say the least. And so what we need to do is we need to actually just have like a federal framework for it, because right now it's a state by state hodgepodge, and that's the worst of all worlds for everyone. Um, so what I'm proposing is we need to just have a standard set of rules that everyone can abide by. But Andrew, isn't the part of the point of crypto is to not have regulation? You know, and, and so this is one of the reasons It's called why, crypto. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I wanna actually have this framework out, because for anyone who's willing to abide by the framework and even yes, pay taxes, then the least we can do is actually give them a framework so that they can abide by it, because we should be rewarding the, the good actors, essentially. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I don't know how the crypto markets will react to that, but but you do need consumer protection. That's why we have it in the laws overall in the in the country. So, and you're among the few people who are at least thinking about it. So, yeah, I mean the cryptocurrency. It's I mean it's 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 an education. Like you get into that community and you start you start learning a lot. Yeah. All right. Here's another interesting policy plank: a head of culture and ceremony. Jesus, Lord mercy. What does that mean? <laughs> um, so right now, the, the the job of the president has morphed over time, and it includes a lot of things that um, may or may not be difference makers for the American people, like pardoning turkeys and congratulating sports teams and like attending various things. Yeah. Um, and so my thought is like, well, look, wouldn't the sports teams uh, rather meet Oprah or The Rock than me? Uh, and so the the goal is to try and actually create a position where uh, the president has a little bit more time to possibly solve more high impact problems. And then you anoint someone who's able to fulfill some of the ceremonial duties in ways that you know still make Americans very happy. Okay, so you're saying a ceremony czar, so you're, not, you're actually figuring out the crypto stuff while Oprah's pardoning the turkey. That's right. <laughs> okay, well, look, you wanted a different candidate. You got a different candidate, and he, that's, there's a reason why he's in the top 10. Uh, it, this is a very substantive one, ending bidding wars for corporate relocation. I get what that is, I don't, not sure how you would do it, how would you do that? It's actually straightforward, it wasn't me that recommended this, it was uh, like a journalist who said we should make all of the local tax breaks that uh, cities and, and counties and states are put, giving to companies taxable at the federal level. And if you do that then, because we should all be uh, disgraced by this uh, bidding war for Amazon HQ2 that unfolded. We're talking about thousands of man and woman hours um, with hundreds of communities bending over backwards. And we know the beauty contest was more or less a sham. <laughs> we, we know that Amazon was never gonna move to Knoxville or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever it was. 
Um, and if you think about it from an, a national perspective, it does not make a difference to us where in the country the company is headquartered. So the company pits various communities against each other. They get the best deal that they can, and who wins in the end is really just that company. So if you take all these local benefits off the table at the federal level and say, look, if a city or state gives you all these incentives to move there, we're gonna tax you on those incentives anyway. So let's say New York in that scenario said, and we'll keep it the math simple. We're gonna give you a million dollars. That would be laughably low, but a million dollars for you to in tax breaks for you to move to New York. Then the federal government would say, "All right, now I'm going to charge you a million dollars in yes. taxes." Okay, hundred percent taxable, and then you would make you would eliminate them overnight. And then, if you think about it from the company point of view, then you're just going to move where it's actually best for your operations and your business and your workers, and you can get what you need for your business, which is the calculation they should be making. They should not be making it based on which community they can hold over a barrel the most. Yep. And we know that a lot of those benefits don't materialize materialize in real life anyway. Expand selective schools. How are you going to do that? You're going to make our Harvard take more people. Well, you know, I actually have a, a proposal in there that um, Harvard should be investing some of their twenty billion dollar endowment in opening new schools in uh, Ohio or Michigan or some of these other places, uh, because right now acceptance rates for selective schools have plummeted over time. Mm-hmm. When I got into Brown, you know, my parents were uh, were psyched, and the acceptance rate might have been like 18, 20%, like now it's less than half that, because these universities aren't actually rewarded for expanding their class size. Right Mm -hmm. now they get rewarded for rejecting lots of people. So we've created this rat race in our schooling system, and in no other industry would this make any sense. If I was a restaurant and I had like lines out the door every day, I'd probably get a bigger space or I'd open more more locations. Whereas (coughs) our universities have the opposite incentives, (coughs) so we have to, Give them an incentive to get bigger or expand and open new locations. So, yeah, it's now nearly impossible. When I got into Penn, it was way, way easier. When Trump got into Penn, it was laughably easy. Your rich dad just had to write you a letter, okay? But, but now it is very hard. But how do you force private schools to do that? Well, you can. Every private university right now is dependent upon the government for. Um, grant funding, and also if you want to get very extreme, even their tax exempt status. So what you could say is, look, um, it's great what you're doing, but we're going to start uh, putting incentives out for schools that expand their class size or open new locations. Are you going to get to that in your third or your fourth term? I'm going to get that in my, my first term. We can get a lot done under the Yang administration. We can do more things at once. So let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to get back to the policies because I'm loving this, uh, but. Uh, there's a traditional way of thinking. When Obama came in, they said, okay, we can only do one thing at a time, otherwise the Senate and the yeah. Congress will explode. Yeah. So we're just gonna do healthcare and then we're gonna pack it up for eight years. So you, on the other hand, have about 120 things on your list. I'm doing tip of the iceberg here. I'm gonna keep doing more of these policies. How in the world would you get them all done in the first term? Well, everyone knows that my flagship policy proposal is the freedom dividend of $1,000 a month. And when I'm president in 2021, everyone knows it's gonna be because of the dividend. So I'm gonna show up to Congress in day one and say, hey guys, it's dividend time. And then the Democrats and progressives will say, fantastic, I'm just so glad we got Trump the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the Republicans conservatives will look up and say, like, hmm, dividend for our citizens, like, you know, um, uh, maybe I don't hate that. Maybe, you know, I represent like a, Red state that would benefit from that, and so no, I got news for you. They hate that. 
and, yeah, uh, and, and okay. Like, so, so um, when you say how are we going to get a lot of things done, I, you know, uh, it is true that you have to focus, and everyone knows my focus um, uh, is going to be the dividend, at least initially. Okay, but let's stay on that. I, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Bernie Sanders. Uh, so, um, he's got ambitious proposals. You have ambitious proposals. You're going to run into uh, the corporate donors so quick. Um, so it's not just Republicans, it's you're gonna, the entire Republican Party on anything that helps the American people as opposed to their donors, they're gonna say no, you're never going to persuade them. They're not care, They're not gonna care if you got 50 states out of 50 in the election, okay? Uh, and unfortunately, a significant chunk of the Democratic Party too. So you can have all the beer summits you like, uh, but they're not gonna say yes. So then what do you do? Well, first I agree with you that uh, our government has been overrun by moneyed interests, uh, and it's one reason I'm running. The goal is to try and restore democracy to our, our people if we can. It's gonna be a massive clash, I agree, when we get up there. Uh, it is the case, though, that if you're a moneyed interest, you're some megacorp, and then President Yang's like, hey, we should put dividends out of $1,000 a month. Um, some megacorps will actually get on board with that because they'll see that some of that money is gonna come back to them. Um, you know, if like if you're a big company, like wait a minute, if you because right now, anyone objective can see our middle class is declining, and if you're a business that caters to the, the middle class, then it's actually good for you if we have more money to spend. So it, it is the velocity of money. It's uh, what Henry Ford talked about: make the cars, uh, you know, pay your workers well enough so that they can afford your cars. So that that some of that might happen. I, I understand. Not that. all of them. Some of them are just corrupt and will try and kill you, like squash you. Yeah. But then I, I think there, there's at least some subset will be like, wait a minute, like, do I really hate this dividend plan? Yeah. <laughs> so Andrew, there's an interesting phenomenon going on online where you, even though a lot of these uh, platforms sound very progressive, like obviously universal basic income, um, now you don't. Uh, you don't fit the orthodoxy in, in any specific way, and that's part of the reason why you're not fully on board for the progressive pledge, although you love parts of it, as you explained, like Medicare for all. But why do you have seemingly right-wing and libertarian supporters? I'm kind of puzzled by that, given how progressive these policies are. Yeah, I, I've been puzzled from day one, um, and uh, you know the the best guess I have is that they see elements of, of these proposals that will improve their lives. Uh, and uh, they, they're excited about the Yang Yang for that reason. But like, it's been befuddling to me because I'm the son of immigrants, like you. You know, it's like I'm, I, I, you know, I'm a progressive Asian dude. So like, the fact that people <laughs> who um, uh, don't like people like me are somehow supporting my campaign is uh, somewhat mystifying. Yeah, I think that it's it's actually a thirst for anything, anyone that isn't a standard politician, and and Trump. Pretended not to be a standard politician, and then he did the standard lies and going back on his word, etc. So that might be part of it. But if you got anybody on the middle and right wing to agree to these proposals, great. <laughs> okay, nice job. That, that, you know, uh, <laughs> you're right that a lot of people that support me don't like politicians generally. Yeah, <laughs> here, here. You know, and, and that, that's true for people on both sides. Yeah, so speaking of your background, uh, you, so your dad had 50 patents, he was a physicist. Um, and uh, you're going, you're leaning into the stereotype because your slogan is math. Yeah, make <laughs> okay. America think harder, make America think harder. <laughs> Anyone have a math hat and wanna throw one at me? So what color is the math hat? Is it oh, red, it's, it's is dark, it blue? It's dark blue with some white lettering. I'll have one before this uh, the segment's over. Okay, so we're gonna go get the hat for you. Make America think harder, and that's it in reference to all these policies? 
Well, it's to the central narrative that it's not immigrants that are causing economic dislocations around the country. It's technology. It's the fact that you know, thirty percent of malls are closing, and AI is going to end up displacing call center workers and accountants and a lot of other things. And that we got rid of five million manufacturing jobs, four million of which were due to automation over the last number of years. So instead of scapegoating immigrants who have little to nothing to do with the displacement, it's really more about getting Americans focused on the actual changes. Okay, and so one last thing about your background. There's a story about how when you were a kid and you're the only Asian in class, they call you up to the front of the class to do some sort of presentation and what happens next? Also, in that instance, I mean, like I was very shy as a kid and so when I was asked to talk in front of the class, I like broke down in tears and like, you know, and then like the teacher felt bad for me and like sort of let me off the hook. So I was a very shy kid. Yeah, you know, a lot of politicians have fake personal stories, right? It's not that they didn't happen, but they just tell it in some sort of weird maudlin way. I believe that you cried in front of class. Well, who the <laughs> hell would lie about that? I'd have to be one demented human to be like, oh, you know what's gonna humanize me? Some like bullshit story about crying as a kid. I mean, that's not anything. Any. So, all right, that brings us back to policy because we, <laughs> <laughs> we were talking. Oh, look, the math hats here. The math yeah, hats are here. The math okay. hats. So this is what they look like: blue, white lettering. Anyway. God, I love that there's an Asian running for president that has math hats. <laughs> okay, you are not afraid of the stereotypes. Well, it, it originated from this applause line. Uh, the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math, and everyone was like, "Yeah." And then we had math <laughs> signs, and then it worked. So, and then the, the, so we're honest that the acronym "Make America Think Harder" was somewhat retroactive. Okay, all right, sounds good. Uh, so back to the policies, and we were talking about how you're going to get things done. One of the policies you have is hold pharmaceutical companies accountable. Okay, how would we do that? Well, the first thing is we have to negotiate drug prices that are in line with international norms. I mean, when people talk about the affordability, right now our government can't even negotiate for drug prices on behalf of itself or the American people. So that's number one. And then if the drug companies won't stop profiteering on the backs of the American people, then we should be authorizing and licensing generics. Um, uh, that would then take that um, you know opportunity away from them. Um, also, the most extreme is uh, Purdue Pharma. The way they've they've um, killed tens of thousands of Americans by dispensing OxyContin in record levels, um, and no one's gone to jail for that. Uh, and they should. I mean, it's blood money. So we find them six hundred thirty million dollars, which sounds like a lot until you realize that company made thirty billion dollars on OxyContin. So um, what would you find them? Um, I, I would send the, the uh, um, CEO and majority shareholders to jail, um, and I would like uh, find them every cent that they made. And then because the, the the problem is that every company will do whatever is in its own best interests. So if you do the math and say, hey, I'm going to make thirty billion, you're going to find me six hundred million, which is only two percent of the thirty billion I made. Then a lot of companies will end up um, pursuing very bad behavior. Yeah, so, if you're going to try to outmath Andrew Yang, you're going to make a mistake. Okay. You're gonna go directly to jail. <laughs> but okay, I mean, no, but now, if you kill tens of thousands of Americans, you should go to jail. No, I mean, we, like, there's something very corrupt going on in this country. We, we took the drug dealers and, and we gave them three piece suits and, and so and criminalized, decriminalized drug dealing in that sense. We also took the loan sharks, gave them three piece suits and called them payday lenders. We took the, the people who used to give bribes in, in you know, dark corridors 
and made them lobbyists and and made that legal. So yes, there's <laughs> that's a- true, man. <laughs> We've like normalized so much graft and theft; it's obscene. Yeah, criminality is now um, for white collar crime, and then for the bankers, we said. And I had a guest here that was one of the top experts in the country on it. And he said, best way to rob a bank is to run a bank. And so, and, and the executive said, yeah, take all the money, etc. So blue collar crimes are punished much more severely and white collar crimes aren't punished at all. Unless you're Bernie Madoff, because the one thing you cannot do is steal from other rich people. So anyway, but ironically, you have decriminalized opioids on your list. Yeah. So how did those two things jive? Well, in a way, if you think about opioid users, I mean, a lot of those people are blue collar. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I couldn't agree with you more that, um, you know, like uh, that there's a lot of uh, reprehensible behavior that should be criminal that people are getting away with every day in terms of financial crimes. And if, if you do get caught, it's like, well, like, <laughs> you know, but um, when I was in Iowa, this high school senior said to me that his classmates are walking around with fentanyl patches on their arms, that they're already addicted. Eight Americans are dying of. Opiate addiction every hour. It's a plague. It's a real life plague. And so, um, so that high school s- senior asked me, it's like, hey, what can we do to help my classmates? And I looked at him and I was like, holy crap, like we have to do much, much more. Um, and so I talked to him afterwards and found out that none of them would ever breathe a word about their addiction because, you know, like the substances are illegal. Like, last thing any teenager is going to do is be like, hey, I'm hooked on an illegal drug. Um, and so I studied what other countries have done, including Portugal. And they, when they decriminalized some of these drugs, uh, their overdose levels went down, their use levels went down. And what decriminalization really means is just if I catch you with a lot of with drugs that are for personal use, you're not selling, you're not dealing. Um, I refer you to treatment and counseling, and not a jail cell. All right, the last one here: nuclear launch decisions. I didn't know we had an issue with that, other than the fact that Trump is president. Uh, how would you reform that if it needs to be reformed? I talked to someone in the military whose job it is to actually like launch the missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he's like literally like there, just like next to the you know the key. He's he's a button man, as he's Bush would man. say. He's a button man. Yeah. And so I asked him, hey, like, what are the safeguards after you get like the word? And he's like, no safeguard. My my job's to just freaking launch those things as fast as possible. And so then I did some research and found that um, it's essentially just like a one line of decision making. It's like, you know, president says, uh, launch the missiles, and then the military is supposed to just do it. Um, and so I thought, well, that seems uh, terribly rash when you're talking about the end of uh, civilization as we know it. So I said, well, at a minimum, you need another sentient human to sign off on it, just in case like the president is not the decision maker you want. <laughs> and this is yeah. what you could argue we're in the midst of right now. So I said, at a minimum, you need to check um, where like a uh, second person signs off. Okay, who would the second person be? Uh, it's a person in the chain of command, so it's either the vice president or the chief of staff. Okay, interesting. And uh, is it fair to characterize you as the anti-Buttigieg? Because Buttigieg says, hey, I don't do policies, I do values. Um, well, I did not realize that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly how he came out in the beginning. I mean, he very famously said that. I think he might have realized now, like, hey, one or two policies might help. But well, you know, he's like, um, uh, you know, I, I've spent a little bit of time with Pete. Um, like, uh, you know, we all have our different approaches to solving the problem. Um, I like Pete. Uh, you know, I, I think that we have a, a lot in common. Um, but if he's leading, but with values, not policies, in my mind, the policies are the values. 
Like if you if you if you go to my website yang2020.com and see some of these policies, you actually get a vision for the country that you can imagine if all these policies were enacted. And then you can imagine how that would actually play out in terms of our day-to-day lives. And that to me is a conversation we should be having. I, we pride ourselves on honesty here, but I, the, the one time that I lies, whenever I say last question. So last question, um, <laughs> who would be your vice president? So one of my rules is I need to meet someone and spend time with them before I'd ever hire them, particularly for something as important as uh, you know, uh, partner in the administration and probably next president if everything goes well. So ha- since I haven't met everyone, um, I couldn't say. Um, but I-, I would say that <laughs> I have a preference for someone who would um, provide another point of view. And I, I think that um, societies and organizations and companies work best when they have both strong male and female leaders. Um, so, so that's just one thing I'll, I'll leave out there is that uh, that would be a preference of mine. So to have a, a female VP. Okay, that is very clear. I've used up a couple of last questions here. So yang2020.com, also we always give the information for donations of volunteers. You're not taking corporate PAC money, right? No, and the fun thing is if you make a donation today, you're probably gonna be part of us getting to 130,000 donors and making the September debate. So right now we're at 118,000 unique donors and the DNC threshold for September is 130,000. So if you give today, you can, and then when I'm on the debate stage in September, you'll be like, hey, I helped make that happen. Well, that's what you said first time you came on here and they did it. It happened, yes, thank (laughs) you, look at this, and here we are. All right, Andrew Yang running for president, thank you so much. It's great to be back, man, thank you, anytime. All right, guys, we'll see you soon.